This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. Joining me for The Bigger Picture today, Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, Tim, um, we're going to be going with a subject very close to your own domestic life, I think, the, the exam results. Not that you've been taking any, of course. No, no, quite. I haven't taken exams for a long time, but... Um, my daughter has just received her GCSE results, uh, which are superb. Um, she is infinitely cleverer than I ever was. Uh, but we now, of course, also have uh, in uh, last week the A-level results. And there are lots of young people mm. going through clearing for our university system, lots of people maybe starting their careers and maybe going to university a little bit later. My reflection is um, that... Uh, qualifications uh, generally are so much more important than they were uh, this time last century um, and we haven't just got a sort of debate around qualification inflation or what some political economists call credentialist inflation the idea that you have to have credentials mm. everything these days um, literally everything almost I mean everything is regulated um, but I think the reflection has to be that we live in a much more complex economy. If I think back to my dad's day, my father, when he left school, was given limited options. You know, on the working class sort of skilled manual side, was he going to be a shipwright? Was he going to go into the dockyard? Was he going to go into mining? Um, was he, you know, going to go into various things? Or if he wanted a blue-collar career, uh, was he going to, you know, maybe do something, uh, sorry, a, a white-collar career? Was he going to train for accountancy or the law or whatever? The point was that in the latter part of the 19th century and certainly uh, right through the first half of the 20th century, you could literally count the sort of number of careers on just a few hands. Um, people were siphoned off into these enormous sectors, these industries. But today, uh, you can identify any sector of our economy. You could talk about the service sector, of which, of course, um, you can have a part of that law, accountancy, you can think of medicine, or you can think of manufacturing, you know, whatever you think of. All these sectors are very, very complicated, but they also are heavily entwined. Very few, when, we, when economists talk about goods or services, very few goods don't involve an awful lot of services these days. And a lot of services um, somewhere along their lines involve all kinds of goods. You know, I, I don't remember, for example, seeing an accountant without a computer um, or... Um, or things like mobile phones. Um, so it's a very complicated economy, very complicated 
really for young people, I think, to choose today what they want to do. If you're going to go into engineering, do you do uh, electronic and electrical engineering? Do you do civil engineering? Um, you know, do you choose aero engines? You know, what do you do? Um, there are thousands of opportunities today that were not available to most people uh, just over a century mm. ago. Um, I saw something recently, I can't remember, what was, I think it was an ex-education minister, I can't remember who, um, saying he found it surprising that given how complex the economy these days is, that we're still teaching the main sort of eight, nine, ten subjects that we were teaching well over 100 years ago. Well, I, I think in some ways it's understandable because <clears throat> if you're teaching maths, further maths, English, uh, English literature, I mean, you know, you have to read, you have to write. Mm. It is good in an interconnected world, I think, to be able to speak other languages. Uh, if, if, if you're you know, interested in uh, the social sciences, if you're interested in the humanities, it's probably quite good to have a grasp of the ancient world. So classics, I think, has a role. Thinking, philosophy, there are lots of subjects there. But and yet those last subjects you made all seeing far fewer, far smaller proportion of pupils taking them than they used to. Indeed, because there is a rise, of course, of a lot of new subjects. Um, engineering, as I mentioned earlier, is not just a subject and it has long been a subject. And it's a sort of spin off, if you will, of mathematics and physics. But it's becoming much more complicated. When we were young, um, the slightly zippier friends that we had were doing computer studies. Mm. Of course, now um, you can see computer science. Uh, is increasingly itself becoming specialised. So you have people who are looking at cryptography. Uh, you have people who are starting to focus on artificial intelligence, on AI. Uh, and you certainly see that above A-level. So this, I think, makes the point that there are new subjects coming on. They, uh, they are ever more important to the lifeblood of our economy and our, and our, our civic life but they are themselves becoming uh, ever more complicated. They are disporting an ever greater division of labor. For, uh, and for example, my daughter has taken a surprising turn recently. She's a very, very good mathematician. She was gonna be doing for A-levels physics and chemistry. She now doesn't want to do the physics, she wants to do the economics. But when um, she was looking at uh, an opportunity for a work placement with artificial intelligence, she said, she made a very good point, I must do that because whatever I do in the future, AI is going to be a part mm, of it. Yes. And that's true in a way, isn't it? <clears throat> um, with your, if, you, if you're going to do accountancy or you're going to do law or you're going to do medicine, AI is going to feature. Yes, that's true. Now, in our day, Tim, quite often we would have no idea what we wanted to do at school, just get through it, just do the exams you had to, had to do. You sort of maybe saw a careers officer on the last day of your last day at school, frankly. I think I did exactly that at university, went to see the careers officer, who I think said, oh, well, you've been doing some writing. Trollope was a writer. Uh, he had a very boring job, which put a lot of, lot of scope there for creative thinking, and recommended I go and work in the post office like Trollope had, because it would, it would give me these creative flights of fancy. But... You know, we didn't know. We didn't specialise terribly early. But also a lot of people ended up in jobs that where they hadn't got qualifications, but, you know, they were able to show they did. Do you think we, we need 
both that youngsters are having to know what they want to do too early, but also that it's to some extent preventing people who otherwise might through natural abilities um, achieve something in, in particular occupations? So it's a really good question. I think there are three types of people. I think there are those who, when they're young, um, they know with a passion what they want mm. to do. My wife knew at the age of eight that she wanted to be a nurse. She's gone to the top of that mm. profession, and I think she's enjoyed every day. I think there are those who don't quite know what they want to do as a career or in for work, but they have subjects that they're very good at and enthusiastic about. Mm. Um, I've had, for example, friends in the past who enjoyed math or philosophy or social science. They've enjoyed the subjects. They've often gone to study at university, but then later they've been able to transfer those subjects and some of the skills and competencies they've gained. They've been able to transfer them into the world of work. I had, for example, two friends uh, one who studied philosophy, one who studied social science, they went on to have successful uh, uh, careers in banking. The third type of person uh, is the type of person who doesn't know what they want to do uh, in terms of career. They never quite find their niche um, at school or at university. And that does not mean that they're not good academically. I have one friend who was brilliant at school, but she never really found her niche. She went on to study medicine. She is uh, a very successful doctor, but she's never enjoyed it mm. um, with you know, great sort of passion um, and, and enjoyed it in the way that many of us go on to enjoy our careers. So, you know, there, are, there is that third group of people, um, many of whom can be very clever, and superficially, they appear to be doing something they enjoy, but actually, no, they've never quite found their way. Mm. And, but what is clear and has been cleared for at least 30 or 40 years is that pretty much to do anything, uh, whether it's academic, whether it's um, vocational, you have to go the qualifications route. And, you know, if you want to be an electrician or you want to be a gas engineer, or a low temperature engineer who, for example, puts freezing cabinets into places like our supermarkets, boy, you have to have qualifications. And I think from a standards point of view, from a health and safety point of view, that is understandable. But the question is, what degree of, of, of specifics do you need to pick up and, and at what level? Um, that is an ongoing debate. But I do think that when we talk about or politicians talk about, you know, lots of qualifications and and people having and, and certainly young people um, uh, sort of suffering a world of credentialist inflation. A lot of that is to do with the fact that we live in a very, very advanced, highly complex economy that demands a vast amount of skill knowledge and a lot of competence and in a way that was not the case 100 150 200 years ago thank you let's uh, change topic at evernorth health services we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best it's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. 
Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm in conversation with Tim Evans of Middlesex University. Tim, where do you want to go next for your second subject? So a really interesting article by Alastair Heath in The Telegraph. It's called Brexit is on the Brink. And basically, he's arguing that a lot of people are misreading the current woes of the world, um, the high inflation, uh, the high taxes, um, the sort of stagnation that, that our economy is saying. A lot of people are misappropriating blame for this um, at the door of Brexit, and that lots of people have political incentive to do that, when in fact, um, the woes of our economy, well, some of the woes are much worse in other countries, but that um, these woes actually have much more to do with COVID or even more recently, um, the uh, Russian um, invasion of Ukraine. Um, and what he's basically arguing is that, uh, whereas we've had Theresa May as prime minister and we've had Boris Johnson, it is not yet clear to people because of COVID and because of uh, the damaging effects of the conflict in Ukraine, it's not clear to people that there is a significant upside to be enjoyed with Brexit. And because of that, he thinks that people's memories will fade. There will be a blurring of the lines. This will become all very messy and people will look back to the pre 19 <clears throat> 2016 world uh, when we were in the European Union and that um, and that there'll be a somewhat of a rewriting of history and they will be thought to be the great years and that people will develop nostalgia for them. It's an interesting point. Um, I'm not convinced by it. I suspect uh, Liz Truss will win the leadership of the Conservative Party um, and that she will make radical and bold changes. Uh, whilst I think Alistair's argument is plausible, I think it's also plausible that um, politicians in this country will find it very difficult to touch the Brexit debate for the next 10 or 20 years. Um, and if if and when they do, um, um, there'll be other issues mm. at play. So I'm not convinced by his argument, but it's one that I think is interesting. Political nostalgia is something we've touched on before. I mean, one thinks of you know, some in East Germany who think that things were better you know in the old days and we've discussed it before with young people um those who supported Corbyn for instance um but many who sort of tend towards the left wing because they never lived under a socialist or communist regime so they think well it must be better than capitalism which they blame for all the woes of the modern world but I mean he does talk about how, how relatively few advantages have been taken of Brexit possibly because of COVID, but many things that could have been done to take us away from the EU, particularly on sort of the regulation side to do with the city, but many other things. I mean, it simply haven't happened. So there aren't that many um, examples you can point to of things that have improved. I mean, he does mention um, COVID vaccine, which is obviously terribly important. And um, some of the trade deals and the arm, you know, the defence deal with Australia. But why do you think it's been that um, so little advantage has been 
taken? I think the first reason is that you only get um, substantive changes in British politics, really big changes, once every, once or twice a century. Um, I would argue, a lot of people on the left argue that Clement Attlee made great changes. He did, it's true. But the really substantive changes, I would argue, came under Lloyd George. The reforms that Lloyd George put mm. through, for example, in 1911, with the sort of creation of the early Bismarckian British welfare state. That yes. really Sorry, suddenly flashing back to my O-level history now. I seem to remember this one of our topics. Yes. Yeah, but yes. that really did mark uh, a change in direction for Britain. And in a way, you could argue that Clement Attlee therefore followed in the wake of the Lloyd George reforms. Uh, similarly, you can argue on the right uh, that Margaret Thatcher took us away from the sort of butskillist post-war consensus in a much more radical free market direction. Um, and that Tony Blair uh, followed in her wake. Um, we might have had the Brexit vote uh, and there might have been a putative deal with the European Union. What we have not had is a substantive inflection point um, that is noticeable both at the political level but also um, at the sort of the real world ordinary you know mm. ordinary everyday level um, maybe Liz Truss will pull that off um, uh, that seems to be the the line that she's giving that she does want to deviate that she does want substantive reform of regulation that she does want radically lower um, um, taxes that, you know, there are even indications that she wants to deviate from uh, the ECHR on all those issues. Mm. Maybe she will, maybe she won't. Um, it's very difficult to know when the inflection points will come. However, this is very important, I think, to recognise. One thing that usually happens um, is that the substantial changes come as a result of a period of crisis. Um, Margaret Thatcher could not have done what she did in the 1980s, quite frankly, without the devaluation of the pound in 1967, all the woes of the Heath government, the IMF loan of 1976, and the winter of discontent. So it could be argued that all the problems that have been associated, the bumpy road that is Brexit, all the economic woes are, are associated with COVID and all the huge problems mm. that Russia is causing, all the inflation, all that, that this could actually aid a substantive reformer, someone like Liz Truss, and that it could actually aid the sort of reforms that Alistair Heath has so long championed. Now, I don't know. I don't know if we're heading to a really big crisis and that crisis will lead us to a sort of, I don't know, a Brexiteers sort of fantasy land, which is mm -hmm. something with a much smaller state and a much more what you might call Southeast Asian or Singaporean approach. Or if this crisis is simply going to go on and Britain isn't going to substantially change, we're just going to be lumbered with higher taxes, higher regulations, being half in and half out of Europe and not a lot is going to change. I either can, the can will be kicked down the road. I don't know, but I do understand those are the macro options yes. we face. You've got another topic up your sleeve, so let's turn to that for our, our uh, to finish off today. 
So what we what 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 is your final topic, Tim? So the final topic is um, I'm mindful that uh, we've just stepped over uh, the six month mark uh, since Russia invaded mm. Ukraine, and what's really interesting um, about where we've seemed to have ended up is that that the 21st of March looks to have been the high point of the Russian invasion. You know, they invaded on the 24th of February, but by the 21st of March, they seem to have captured as much terrain as they were going to capture. And in fact, since then, they've, of course, lost some uh, some 45,000 square kilometers of Ukraine. They've lost huge parts in in the north. Uh, They didn't get to Odessa. They didn't capture uh, Mikolaev. Um, uh, They had to retreat um, from Kharkiv. Uh, And indeed, there are questions over what's going to happen in the weeks and months ahead around Kherson. Mm. So the Russians, uh, from the high watermark of their invasion, which was the 21st of March, they've lost more than 45,000 square kilometers. And since early to the middle of July, it seems that they've only gained uh, around, um, well, around roughly 174 square miles. Um, and, and even there, that seems that you know, that seems to be kind of culminating with a with the general running out of steam. What's really fascinating is that the Russian defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, stated on the six-month anniversary that Russian forces are going to slow down their overall pace of offensive operations, something that's very clearly been happening in recent weeks, but now he's announced it publicly. Um, uh, even though Russia's rather grander objectives in the war have not changed. So not only did the Russians invade um, uh, and reach a, a high watermark quite quickly, but goodness have they lost a lot of territory. They have retreated. They have achieved very, very little in recent weeks. And now their defence minister is publicly asserting that um, that they are indeed slowing down their overall pace of their offensive operations. So one wonders really uh, with winter starting to come onto the horizon, um, the scale uh, of the humiliation that, that Russia is suffering. I mean, they started this with an extraordinary reputation from the Second World War. Um, uh, uh, yes, they suffered a defeat um, and they pulled out of Afghanistan, but goodness, uh, if they cannot hold uh, the sort of territory that they had captured uh, by March this year in Ukraine, one really wonders what their capability is and how long it will take uh, an ever-diminishing economy that is Russia to rebuild their forces. Uh, but it, it seems to me that six months on, this is resembling far more World War One, a sort of mm-hmm. static uh, trench-like warfare in large parts of that country than, than I think many people imagined uh, in February and before that. And and what do you think might happen now? I mean, Ukraine just celebrated Independence um, Day, but clearly there is there is worry um, among the Ukrainians that the EU in particular is sort of losing heart. Um, weapon supplies seem, seem to have dried up or not materialised in the case of Germany, or virtually none at all. Um, and will we 
hear from both Boris Johnson from this trust that they're still firmly committed. I don't quite know what the American attitude is. It was clearly without help um, in the form of weaponry. The Ukrainians would not have managed to hold the Russians off in the way that they have. But I'm not an expert on this, it's not my area, but my impression is that NATO has done a, an awful lot to support the Ukrainians and that NATO has been very much led by the United States and Britain. I think from a uh, Kiev point of view, uh, Britain has been probably the most stalwart in terms of, uh, of, 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 of politics and, and, and media. Uh, Boris Johnson has been vociferous and energetic. I would imagine if we do have a Prime Minister of this trust, that she will be the same. Financially and in terms of equipment, of course, America and Britain, but particularly America, have done a remarkable job. Uh, but they have the logistics capability and no doubt the reserves to, to do what they've done. Uh, the question has to be, yes, uh, what will happen with the European Union? Now, I would imagine the Russians will be directing an awful lot of information warfare and political warfare to try and fracture things, particularly in France and Germany. But I think one of the consequences of this conflict is that the geocenter, if you will, of the EU will move more away from that traditional Charlemagnean partnership that is France and Germany, the sort of the bedrock country yes. going back from the EU to the EEC and back to the Treaty of Rome. I think that central gravity is moving more into Central Europe. It will be led by Poland, uh, but then you're going to see the Czech Republic and Slovakia and Romania and Bulgaria and others and, and the Baltic states who feel very threatened. So I think that if I'm sitting in Bonn or Paris, um, I'm going to have very powerful, very loud um, friends to the east who are going to be very vociferous uh, and demand an awful lot of support for the Ukraine on an ongoing and sustainable basis moving forward. Thank you. Very much indeed. I've been in conversation with Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, Tim, I hope, is going to be with me again at the same time next week. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.